Welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Malik Rasamni, who is a documentary filmmaker, researcher, writer, and is also finishing his doctoral research project at Paris Nanterre University. In addition to all of that, Malik is an old friend, and his actual claim to fame is being one of the first presenters at one of the first Afikra events in New York. Malik, uh, I guess I should say welcome back to Afikra. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been a, a fan for a long time, ever since the very, very first uh, Afikra meeting. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to being here today. So this is one of our, one of the episodes that we've produced that um, has been focused on Palestine and understanding how we got here. Um, so I should say that we're recording this on January 10th, um, just in case things change tomorrow and the next day. Um, just to give context to everybody. Um, sure. The reason why I wanted you to have you on here is because of a project that you've been working on for many years mm -hmm. called The Native and the Refugee. Um, so maybe before we get started, can you just give an overarching um, description of what that project is about? Oh, yeah, of course. So back in 2004, The Native and the Refugee was something I started with another um, fellow by the name of Matt Peterson, who is um, um, a friend from New York City. And I, we started The Native and the Refugee in 2014, I think around the same time that Afikra started, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I remember yeah. it. Yeah. So it kind of burst of creativity at that time. So in New York City, um, me and him, we started this project in the fall. And the idea was basically to mount a sort of juxtaposition of um, native reservations in the United States and Palestinian refugee camps in the Middle East. And um, the project was from the very beginning conceived of as a multimedia research project. So there's a research component where we're learning about these places, we're visiting these places, spending time there, interviewing people there, talking to people there, but then also uh, kind of working on different kinds of um, artistic outputs that reflect that research and build upon it. So a series of short films um, that we made uh, starting in 2015, I think, um, a book that uh, we have uh, published just last year, um, focusing on one particular group from one particular reservation. I can show you the, it's called uh, the Mohawk Warrior Society, um, a handbook on sovereignty and survival. Uh, and then, of course, uh, many, many, maybe over 100 uh, presentations and workshops and talks. And then, of course, uh, the feature film, uh, feature length film, uh, Spaces of Exception, um, which initially came out in 2019, actually, but had its, um, because of COVID, the uh, its North American debut was um, kind of postponed. And then in October of this year, it finally was released in America. And that has also, of course, coincided with um, the the horrible events going on in Gaza. But the film has enjoyed a kind of renaissance in the last few months, and it's provided a context for us to talk about, uh, you know, to place what's going on within a broader context uh, globally and historically of uh, settler colonialism. So, yeah. Okay, so that's great. Um, I want to talk about those last two words, settler colonialism. Um, sure. Within the American context, when people think about settlers, they think about, you know, pilgrims and um, pioneers coming from Europe, move, 
going into North America um, and taking over the land and exterminating local population, um, sure. cowboys and Indians. Exactly. In what ways is the story of the Palestinians similar to that of Native Americans? And in what ways is it absolutely different? That's a great question. And thank you for talking about the ways in which it's different. Because people oftentimes, unfortunately, assume that when you're making a comparison, you're making a comparison to say the two things are the same. But actually, when you make a comparison, you're seeing that there is some sort of underlying uh, similarity that then makes differences instructive. Because if things are totally different, then differences have no meaning. But if there's some sort of similarity, then differences become meaningful and interesting. So our 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 um, our proposition was never that they were the same. That was never that was never what we were saying. We were saying there's enough similarity to compare them or juxtapose them. But to me, the 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 bigger similarity before I get into the Palestinians and natives is between America and Israel, right? Between the 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 settler colonies as they were. That's where I think the real um, similarity comes in. In both cases, you have a kind of utopic project um, that is built on someone else's land. Uh, this idea of creating a kind of utopia that's kind of religiously inspired in America, obviously, uh, Christian ideas of building the hill on the mount. You even see uh, the idea of constructing a new Jerusalem in a lot of old American writings. So you have this idea of this kind of founding myth of creating this um, perfect place that would be an example to other nations, but it's on other people's land. Um, same thing with Israel. Israel is this kind of utopic kind of semi, you know, conceived of as this utopic project for Jewish people and this kind of this beacon um, to to solve the Jewish question around the world. And in both cases, you have people who are fleeing genuine religious persecution, to put it mildly. Um, that's obviously the main story in the case of Zionism. And that's part of the story, too, in the case of the United States. Uh, we forget that a lot of people in the Northeast who came were, were, were uh, basically fleeing religious Protestants, fleeing religious persecution in Europe. Um, also, the method in which the two countries expanded is also kind of similar in the sense that in both cases, you have this kind of this zone where they'll say, OK, this is the the border of the country. Right. In the case of Israel, it's, you know, the West Bank is beyond Israel. And so officially, OK, this is not our country. But then you have settlers who are kind of these pioneers, quote unquote, who go there, live there. And then inevitably, they're going to enter into some kind of conflict with the local population. When they do so, the army comes in to protect them and then in doing so kind of annexes that land. And it's a very similar uh, process with the United States where you have these kind of declared borders of the U.S., but then you have these pioneering figures who are oftentimes the more religious within the society who venture west, they go further in, they take land, and then even though that they're, it's not part of America, they go on their own, quote unquote. But then inevitably when they have conflicts with the local native population, the U.S. military comes to help them and force to to kind of protect them. And in doing so, that initiates a kind of gradual um, process of colonization or of, of or of land settlement and colonization. But doesn't occur in one fell swoop. It's this kind of multi-layered process that extends both within and without the nation state and within and without the bounds of of, of legality as well yeah. as defined by the nation state in question. So, so that's the, that's the similarity between the two countries. Yeah, that's the similarity between the two settlers. Mm -hmm. How do those similarities, exactly. or maybe let's talk about the differences? Are there any meaningful differences 
in terms like one of the things that we talk a little bit about uh, one of the retorts you hear a lot mm-hmm. when um people who support zionism talk about this idea of settler colonialism one of the, the retorts i've heard a bunch is how could we be settlers we don't have like a sponsor state mm. Mm. is there are there any meaningful differences that but have the, resulted the, in the same in the same but, thing well, the United States didn't have a sponsor state either. I mean, they rebelled from their sponsor state to create their country. That was the whole thing. Um, so, I mean, of course, they were supported by France in the beginning and by certain European powers, but they were also kind of on their own. So that's, that's another further similarity where it's not like French Algeria, where France is backing the settlement of Algeria. Yeah. There, there, there isn't, a, I mean, okay, they ostensibly come from Europe, but it's a mixture of people from different countries in Europe who have an antagonistic relationship in the beginning to where they come from, England, in the sense that they had a war to get their independence, similar to how um, a lot of European Jews had an antagonistic, obviously, relationship to Europe, especially after the Holocaust. So, no, to my mind, that's a further that's a further similarity that reinforces the fact that it's a settler colonial society. It doesn't uh, doesn't work to deny it. Yeah. So, in what ways is it is it meaningfully different? Different. So far, it's like completely lining up. Um. <laughs> the, <laughs> The difference between the United States and uh, well, I mean, I think there's a difference between the Arab world and uh, and the native situation, obviously, yeah, in the so sense that the the the, the native world uh, in America, you had uh, so many different tribes, um, quote unquote tribes. We use the word tribes, peoples, let's say, peoples from different parts of the land who had their own uh, cosmologies, their own languages, and the work of colonization was to kind of Put both to assimilate them, to annihilate them, but also to create this singular category out of them. They're all native, which in a sense they are. I mean, the, the, the idea of being native in the modern age is a useful construct for the purposes of activism. Yeah, but, but for them, they also... would say Indian. They wouldn't have said native. Right. And they're, they, well, they would have said whatever, whatever, where they're from, they would have said, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, Ongo, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm uh, Lakota. Right. No, or I mean, Diné. I mean, um, oh. the settlers would have called them all Indians. Oh, yeah, yeah. The settlers would have called them all Indians. But so it's kind of this flattening of difference. Whereas in the Middle East, the, it was precisely the opposite. You have these people who are, of course, they have their own identities as well and their own. But they're they're all broadly speaking Arabs. They speak the same language. Um, many of them are Muslim. But even but even the, the their religion does not obey geographical boundaries. Uh, there are there are there are they're they're transnational. There are Christians in this country, Druze in that country, etc. And the work of colonization is to separate them and say, okay, this is Palestinian, this is Lebanese, this is Syrian, this is Jordanian. So it's the it's the creation of nations as a yeah. means of separation as opposed to the flattening out. So that that's one difference. Um, and of course, the American project, because it's occurring uh, in the quote unquote new world in the Western Hemisphere, it it's it's push it's 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 this broader project to kind of take over the entire area, whereas Israel has some of that, but Israel has been more limited within a defined area. Of course, they breach it at certain points with the invasion of Lebanon or Egypt or Jordan, but generally it's been, um, it's had a, 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 a smaller geographic scope. Uh, also, of course, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, and also the, the you know, the, 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 what it means to be indigenous is of course also different in both cases. Yeah. Um, sure. So, I mean, the Palestinians, it's a different status of indigeneity than native people, but I still think we can understand um, the Palestinian struggle as being fundamentally a struggle of the people from a particular land against uh, forces of displacement. Yeah. 
So that, that's, that's what I mean by indigenous in that situation. So in Spaces of Exception, the, this feature film, a uh, feature length yeah. film that you're talking about, um, mm -hmm. it looks, it draws stark parallels um, between Palestinian refugee camps and American Indian, Native American uh, reservations. Yeah. Um, many people, myself included, have never been to reservation. Um, mm -hmm. Walk me through how you how you guys did this project and what was strikingly similar about both of these, as you said, exceptional spaces. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so in both so in both cases, um, why did we focus on the reservation and refugee camp? First of all. The reservations, they were created in different kinds of ways, but they are in many places, um, the, the territories, they're both, some, they're, they're basically, they have this dual nature where they are both places that the United States push native peoples onto. So they kind of have this kind of prison camp quality, but they are also territories where it is possible to practice a kind of native sovereignty. So they they are... If we're to understand uh, the various tribes, quote unquote, as nations, reservations are the kind of territories that within the United States law, they legally hold. Of course, they, they would say that they have way much more land, but at least within the political structure of the United States, those are the territories where they are guaranteed a kind of quasi autonomy. To and, and so it's precisely there that kind of political struggles for native sovereignty, for the sovereignty of a particular nation, native nation are enacted. Um, so again, and similar, similarly, refugee camps are also places where the UN um, kind of allocated for Palestinians to sit and wait for their right of return after uh, 1948. But they are also places that uh, where Palest where the, where the dream of a unified Palestine lives, right? Because they're not they're not it's not simply being from the West Bank or Gaza. These are people who are from what is today Israel. So it's it's the place where the right of return as a proposition still lives, and and their very presence, their very existence for a long time, symbolized a kind of a, a radical capacity within the Arab world, especially when the Palestinian refugee became the center of the Palestinian struggle in the late 1960s after the the failure of Arab nationalism in the 1967 war. You see a transition from the Arab-Israeli conflict to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is precisely the time when the Palestinian Refugee. So the Palestinian is first understood politically as, as, as a refugee, it's central to Palestinian identity um, at that time. And it's, it, it symbolizes a lot of, because of their status outside of the nation states in which they're located as refugees, and because their very presence symbolizes the abject failure of Arab governments to liberate Palestine, which is what many of them promised initially in the 50s, their, their very existence was a kind of radical catalyst within the Arab world. Um, and inspired a lot of uh, kind of revolutionary movements uh, within the countries in which they were located, which is why they were a threat as much to the Arab governments as they were to Israel, mm. Jordan, uh, Syria, and obviously Lebanon. Their presence kind of was one of the contributing factors for the country's civil war. So I think both of these spaces hold a tremendous political importance in the sense that they are both products of settler colonialism, the distinct products of it, but also places where it is possible to imagine or to enact kind of stronger forms of resistance as well. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's what drew them to us. And then also another uh, thing that drew us was simply that they are, uh, you know, I grew up between America and Lebanon, and so they were both kind of no go zones. 
Uh, I remember that growing up, you know, reservations are places of kind of criminality, of lawlessness. They're places that you don't go to if you're not from there. And there was a similar energy around Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. So the opening wager of the project was to go there and see what simply what it's like and talk to people. Now, in both cases, thinking of a reservation uh, or a refugee camp, what's so interesting is that visually, because I mean, uh, just on a visual. Matic, yeah, before sorry. you keep on going, I want to ask a question. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That, that notion that you described of what these places, these spaces felt like in your mm -hmm. imagination, mm -hmm. right? That list of attributes, that list of adjectives, right? Lawlessness. Sure. Um, well, that, that, that's was the that... perception of the outside world. Exactly. So I wanted to understand, yeah. in what ways of the do you feel like those images and those um, attributes get sort of incepted into your mind as just a person living in other spaces in those societies? How are you informed that that's what those places are like? There are no-go zones. From how people discuss them uh, and from how they're discussed uh, in the media and by people around you. Yeah, but like, kind of. are, are there, like, as you've, as you've gone through this project, right? Yeah. Have you guys dismantled how that happens, how they become such liminal places? Is it intentional? Are there, are there, um, is there intentionality about creating that division, that exception, that exclusion? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the product of the fact that they are, they, their very existence underlines the central contradiction upon which the nation state is founded. The central contradiction of the United States is, is the fact that it was founded on the land of native people. That is the central element. That is the central contradiction at the heart of the United States. Central contradiction at the heart of Israel is also the displacement of the Palestinian po population. The central contradiction in many ways of Lebanon and Syria is that they are distinct countries separate from the rest of the Arab world. Why is, why is a Palestinian a refugee in Lebanon, but not a refugee, you know, 10 kilometers away in Palestine, right? I mean, the, enti the entire architecture of Sykes-Picot is undermined or is exposed by the Palestinian refugees, by the Palestinian refu by the, by the presence of refugees. So indigeneity and refugeehood, even as two concepts, do much to unpack the nation state as a model, just in general, because they point to a pre and post nation state existence that kind of unpacks all of that. So I feel like their, their, their social kind of ostracization is just the natural byproduct of what they represent conceptually and their existence historically. Um, but those, those perceptions uh, that one has, they fall, they're, they're, they fall to the wayside very quickly when one goes in. And I think also, I mean, to, I don't want to over-exaggerate how much these spaces are represented because they're mainly just not represented. So it's not, I mean, right? So uh, to the extent that they're represented, they're seen as laws, but they basically just don't exist more. In people's really imagination. Just, yeah. So to the extent that they exist, it's, it's in those ways, but they really don't exist. I mean, people don't think about them so much. So they're kind of forgotten spaces, quite honestly. We don't think so much about reservations or about native people at all in America, certainly not as a contemporary phenomenon. Maybe that's changing now in the last five, six years, which has been interesting to see. Uh, and I think similarly for Palestinian refugee camps, certainly since the departure of the PLO and the end of the Civil War, Palestinian refugee camps have also been kind of marginalized and forgotten about, something we don't even think about. I mean, you could be living in Saida and have no thought about Ayn al-Halwe, which has, uh, I think, upwards of 120,000 people in it. Yeah. So, um, so right. But but these places still exist, and they have populations, populations that are growing actually, not, yeah. not declining. Um, let's let's talk a yeah. little bit about um, 
the spaces of exception. So sure. what, what places did you go to? Um, how did, you know, what did you do? Yeah. So, uh, spaces of exception is the natural byproduct of the work that we did on the native and the refugee. So it's not like we set out to just make a film called space. We were trying to avoid that tactic of just, uh, going around, capturing footage, gathering footage, disappearing in a cave for two years and then coming out with some movie. Yeah. In fact, we were quite transparent about our work and we tried to um, make the, you know, the the process of the film part of the project, process of making the film part of the project itself. So the very first thing we did um, after a little bit of research was we went to Pine Ridge. That was the very first uh, reservation we went to. And I wanted to say about both places just quickly on the visual note, because this ties in. When, when you first go into them, what's funny is that they're, there's this feeling that they're distinctly outside the country that they're in, but they are also so much the country that they're in, right? So when you go to the most, just from a very stereotypical point of view, when you go to a Pine Ridge, it's like you're in the Midwest, the Great Plains rather, you're in this area that feels so American and you're going into rural areas, almost stereotypically cliche American. And then suddenly you're in another area that feels American, but is also not yeah. in this very serious way. And it's similar with the camps too, because you're going into these crowded, dense neighborhoods in Beirut or Saida or Tripoli, which feel kind of symbolize a lot of the infrastructural issues of Lebanon, the, the, the chaos of Lebanon. And you're in an area that feels like it's a, just a, a poor neighborhood in, in a city, but then there are signs that let you know that you're in a camp, a Palestinian camp, and that you're not in a way in Lebanon in the same way. So there's that similar visual quality to both where they're, they're it's almost like a there's so much in, it's like a black hole. There's so much in the place that they came out the other side in there. Yeah. And they're also somewhere else. But anyway, so the first place we went to was Pine Ridge. Um, and when we came there, what helped us, what allowed us to film or work with these people was the idea that we would be showing this work in, in Palestine or in, in Palestinian refugee camps. Had we been traditional documentary filmmakers who just wanted to kind of capture images uh, to show to like a white audience in a city, I don't think they would have been as interested. But because there's the idea of exchange and because there's this possibility that they would be speaking to another type of audience and because there's a possibility of that they could learn about Palestinian refugees and me being Arab uh, helped with that, gave, gave some authenticity to that, yeah. um, that, they, that they could then, that they would be more interested. So they were like, okay, you can film if you come back and show us what you shot in Palestine so that we can learn about what's going on over there. And so we, we, we went first to Pine Ridge and then Akwesasne. Akwesasne is a Mohawk uh, reservation um, uh, on the border of New York and Canada. Uh, and actually borders Quebec, Ontario, and New York. And Pine Ridge is a, is a, is a Lakota uh, reservation in South Dakota, uh, which has a tremendous history of political struggle. It's where the Wounded Knee Massacre happened in 1890. Uh, and it's also where the standoff with the FBI happened in 1973 uh, during the time of the American Indian Movement. So it has this rich history. Similarly, Akwesasne also has a rich history in terms of the Mohawk Warrior Society and this kind of revival of traditional longhouse in, in, in the 60s, which is what our 60s and 70s, which is what our book was. So we went to those two places first because of their rich history. We made two short films, uh, We Love Being Lakota and The Way of the Longhouse, yeah. with uh, me, Matt, and another uh, fellow, Adam Khalil, who's actually Ojibwe and Egyptian. And he's a, he's a great native artist um, doing very interesting work. 
So anyway, we made those three films together and we went, the three of us, plus another guy named Brandon, we went in January, saw within the span of a few months, and we showed those works in camps in Lebanon, in Jordan, and in the West Bank. Which and camps? We, shot, um, we filmed in many camps. Uh, we went to Rashidi. We went to, uh, initially we went to Rashidi. Malik, maybe, maybe I'm going to ask you just for people who yeah. are A, unfamiliar with camps and B, unfamiliar with Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. And, and yeah, like, sure. Uh, where are these places? Like, let's be a little more specific. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick background on camps. Yeah, please. In 1948, yeah, in 1948 um, Palestinians are displaced from what is today Israel. And uh, basically the UN, there's a special division of the UN called UNRWA. So it's the United Nations Reliefs and Works Agency. And it is an agency of the UN that is specifically dedicated to Palestinian refugees. So it is different from the UNHCR, uh, the UN High uh, Council for Refugees, which manages refugees in general. Um, and the reason for that is because from the very beginning, there's this idea that they're going to go back, that they have the right to go back. Whereas with other refugees, it's unknown what would happen. Of course, they have the right to go, they, they should go back, but there's no, there's no international consensus that they're gonna go back or no agreement with the host country that they're gonna go back. Whereas with UNRWA, there's always, with the Palestinians, there's always the idea that, they, that they're going to go back. So they're in this kind of frozen status of refugeehood um, throughout the decades. The refugee camps are established at, most of, the, most of them are established in the late 40s, early 50s, in five areas. In Gaza, so even though Gaza is part of Palestine, actually most Gazans are descendants of refugees. Uh, most of Ga Gaza basically consists of a series of large refugee camps. West Bank, uh, where there is not the majority, but there is a very, very large refugee population. Uh, uh, Jordan, where there are, of course, a lot of Palestinians were naturalized and are Jordanian citizens, but a lot of Palestinians remain uh, officially refugees in refugee camps, Syria and Lebanon. So those are the five areas where Palestinian refugees exist. Gaza, West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan. Um, and we went to three of those places. We didn't go to Gaza or Syria for you know obvious reasons. Um, so in Lebanon, we went to, and they're spread out in Lebanon, mainly around cities. So mainly towards the coast, there is one camp called Wahdat in the Ba'a Valley, but the rest of the camps are near urban centers. Uh, particularly Sur, Saida, Beirut, and Tripoli. So the UN literally, after 1948, came in and said, we're, we're creating these places? But, yeah, basically. Uh, over time, they, they kind of created them as, as a holding spot for the refugees until the time when they would go back. And that's why Palestinian refugees, unlike any other refugee classes, as far as I'm aware, um, have the ability to pass on their refugeehood status to their children which is not the case for other refugees who, okay, they themselves are refugees, but their children are not refugees. Because they and, they are in places where they can become naturalized eventually. Yes. And there's, and there's, there, I don't know if there's the same consensus that they're supposed to go back. Whereas from the beginning, uh, there's a consensus that the Palestinian refugees have the right to return. So let's go down the list again. So I, I cut you off. So basically, what are the first um, quote unquote camps? And and if you can just describe them, they're not like, we're seeing images of like tents being set up, right? That's how they start. But uh, so what it, what's, fasc what's fascinating, but also horrible, or speaks to their political potency and, and also their, um, speaks to 
the collective guilt of, of all nation states around them is that they are basically temporary states that became permanent. So they were never meant to be permanent. So they're on very small plots of land that were meant to host a certain number of people. But then over time, population grows and you move from kind of uh, tents that look almost like teepees, you know, and then that goes into kind of, uh, kind of things with tarp and further and further. And, and then, and then you have kind of cement blocks with kind of zinc, uh, uh, zinc tile kind of, uh, ceilings. So you move into more and more permanent forms of housing and the place gets denser and denser and denser because, uh, you have more and more people in a set territory because people have children. Uh, and so density and poor infrastructure are defining characteristics of Palestinian refugee camps. Uh, and uh, so in the beginning, they and they're also you have urbanization that's occurring around them. So perhaps when they when they first began, they they were in they looked more maybe more like reservations where they have these tents, but what we imagine reservations to be in tents in kind of semi rural areas. But then over time, they become basically just highly dense parts of the urban landscape, extremely highly dense uh, parts of the urban landscape serviced by poorer infrastructure than the rest of the city. Um, so yeah, are they like? But of course, but there are differences also. Sorry, between uh, different camps in different countries. So I mean, that's really Lebanon. Yeah, uh, it's kind of the case in Palestine, but I would say that Palestinian refugees camps have a, a higher level of infrastructure than uh, Palestinian camps in Lebanon do, because of course uh, camps and reservations are reflective of the nation states that they're in, right? So in Lebanon, you have generally a big issue with infrastructure, and that is reflected in an exaggerated fashion in Lebanon's Palestinian refugee camps. In uh, in West Bank, the, the dominant problem is occupation. Um, and actually in the camps is where the occupation bears its teeth the most, is where the occupation is felt the strongest are actually in the camps. I didn't realize that until I did, until I did this project that uh, the military, the Israeli military oftentimes, the place where it enters into conducts arrests, um, does violent kind of uh, paramilitary uh, assaults and raids. That's all in mainly in the refugee camps. Um, so while the occupation is a generalized condition of the West Bank, it's felt the strongest in the refugee camps. Hmm. Do you, um, in what ways, why did you choose the word exception, spaces of exception instead of like spaces of exclusion? Hmm. Because uh, exclusion doesn't have anything to say for it other than exclusion. Whereas exception is a word that can both point to rejection, exclusion, it encompasses exclusion, uh, being outside, but it also encompasses uh, possibility, alternative ways of thinking, uh, something that is different from the outside that it's in. Uh, and it has, a, and also, of course, we were borrowing from Giorgio Agamben, who's a, a well-known Italian philosopher, and he uh, made famous the idea of the state of exception. He was talking about, for example, Guantanamo Bay, and these areas were these 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 periods of time, in fact, or um, these kind of juridical procedures where you go outside the nation state and you enact pure political power um, beyond the bounds of law, and in the process. Uh, new norms for law created. So does this place that is both outside of law but the beginning of law, where where politics exists in its rawest form. And so we wanted to take that concept but apply it on a spatial level, on a geographic level. 
And we felt that uh, the reservations and camps in certain ways are spaces of exception to parallel his idea of the state of exception. So in, in part, we were inspired um, by him as well. Cool. And that was part of the reason for the term exception. Okay. I want to get back to the question I keep on trying to get it back to and then I keep on uh, interrupting myself. It's okay. So tell us about the um, the actual, where did you where did you screen? Where did you film cool. them um, in the film, but also across the whole project in, in terms yeah. of uh, Palestinian camps? All right. I'm going to try and be a bit faster. So I, I, I went, we went to Lebanon. I went to Rashdiye, which is in Sur. We went to uh, Burj Ayn uh, al-Halwe, which is in Saida. Uh, we went to Burj al-Barajni, uh, Marlies, and Shatila in Beirut. And we went to Badawi in Tripoli. Um, and then and Burj al-Shamali in Sur later on. Um, and in the feature film, we uh, focus on Burj al-Barajni and uh, Burj al-Shamali. We also have a cut from Badawi. In Jordan, actually, although we showed our work in Jordan and we went to a few refugee camps in Jordan, we actually couldn't film any meaningful footage there in large part because um, the people there are so scared to speak um, about any kind of political issue. They're so, there's, there's a kind of taboo for the people about engaging any sort of political discussion on camera, at least, that it made it virtually impossible for us to um, for us to shoot there, um, but then we went to the West Bank, and we went to um, excuse me, went to Arub refugee camp, which is uh, between Bethlehem and Hebron. We went to Aida refugee camp in Bethlehem. We went to um, Daisha refugee camp in Bethlehem. We went to um, Balata refugee camp in Nablus and uh, Janine refugee camp in Janine. Uh, and in the film, Spaces of Exception, we include stuff we shot. We include Balata and we include Daesha. But we also have cuts from Haida, from Haida and uh, Janine. And all of these camps are different because in the West Bank, you have this idea of Area A, B, and C. Area A is where um, basically the Palestinian Authority has a both is in responsible for both political and military affairs. Area B is... Uh, uh, stop me if your audience no, knows no, these no, things. No, no, no. Okay. Go, please. A area B is where um, uh, uh, the the Israeli the Israeli military is in charge of security, but the Palestinian Authority is in charge of politics. And Area C is where the Israeli uh, Israeli military is both in charge of uh, political matters and security matters. So most refugee camps are either in Area A or B. Area C is generally uh, military land. Who does live on Area C are Bedouins, um, and they're subjected to both security and political rule by the Israeli military. We made a, Our latest short film was about them. It's called Bedouins of Jericho. And the Bedouins are an interesting uh, case study because they're indigenous and refugees, and they, they live in reservations slash refugee camps. They have, it's, but anyway, I don't want to get too yeah, far yeah. into that. But... but uh, yeah, so, so so most of the reservations in like Bethlehem or in um, Hebron and those kinds of places, the occupation is very present. It's there every day. The places of Area A are more like a normal Arab country. When Israel enters into those camps, they do so in a really kind of military way, as though they're launching a kind of war. Whereas in Area B, it's this kind of daily nuisance, this daily presence, um, usage of tear gas, et cetera, daily arrests, 
um, this kind of kind of more like police violence that they deal with every day. So there are there are differences even within the West Bank between um, camps like Area A, uh, the camps in Area A and camps in Area B. This sounds like a stupid question, but I'll ask sure. it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. A 18 year old or let's say like 16 year old um, kid in one of the camps in Area A mm-hmm. wants to play soccer with a kid in Area B. Mm-hmm. Are they able to move? Uh, with great difficulty. Great difficulty. Uh, it's hard to move around within the West Bank. Um, it's virtually impossible to go to what is today Israel or uh, occupied East Jerusalem, which wasn't the case you know, before the first intifada. But after the first intifada, which was in many ways a, almost a, rev- a revolt within Israel, of Palestinians who are already kind of part of the Israeli system, then you have this idea of Oslo, which is this idea, okay, we're gonna have two sta- this two-state solution. What that does is, because what you basically have pre-Intifada is one state uh, existing in a kind of apartheid system, which is what you have now, but maybe a less extreme version of what you have, because right? it was less militarized. And then after the first Intifada, you have the Oslo Accords and you have this division where the West Bank becomes a kind of sovereign territory cutting it off from uh, Israel, basically. But that, but then that allows it to become this kind of uh, uh, kind of prison, almost, yeah. uh, or this kind of very enclosed area, if you will. And then within the West Bank, you have a series of checkpoints and blockages that occur uh, that, are, that are being constructed more and more and more as settlements increase that cuts off land and makes it difficult to go from one area to the other. So it is possible, but it's, it's not easy to move from one area to another. And even within area, uh, even within areas, it is difficult to move. So like within, so area B and area C are very, very, um, it is difficult to move within area, area B. And er, within area A, it's maybe a little bit easier within area A. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and Israeli citizens are not allowed to go to area A, but they are allowed to go to area B. So that's why in area B and in area C, the Israeli military is in charge of security measures. That's mm-hmm. their logic because they're protecting the Israelis who have the right to go there. Whereas in area A, it has warnings in Hebrew that if you're, you know, it's as dangerous for you to go there if you're, if you're Israeli. So, um, tomorrow, January 11th, uh, I believe mm-hmm. is there's going to be this court case that's the mm-hmm. South Africans are bringing up in the international yes, court of the justice. Genocide. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. and there's been a lot made of the fact that it's being brought up by the South African delegation. The lawyers mm-hmm. are Irish, um, mm-hmm. and there is this huge transnational, uh, transnational um, solidarity between mm-hmm. South Africans, between Irish, between Palestinians, and because they understand they're all fighting the same struggle against different oppressors, but it's the same oppression, sure. same different flavors of the same. Um, uh, like poisonous fruit. Um, right. Is there a similar level of transnational solidarity between Native Americans and Palestinians in both directions? Thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, so uh, there was in the 70s. Um, what's fascinating is that uh, when you speak to old timers, uh, elders, I should say, in, in reservations, they understand a lot of times Palestine through the PLO, because uh, during the time of the PLO and Yasser Arafat, there was uh, delegations that were sent from Pine Ridge, 
uh, their native reservations to the Palestinian refugee camps actually in Lebanon in the midst of the Lebanese civil war. And what's interesting is that many of these people who went to those camps, that was the first time they ever left the United States. So you basically the first time you leave the United States, it's to practice solidarity with Palestinian refugee camps in the middle of a civil war. So at that time, yes, native people were part of a transnational, uh, transnational solidarity to Palestine. In fact, Yasser Arafat uh, visited Pine Ridge. And the, the running joke is that it's the first time they saw a limousine on Pine Ridge is when he came. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so there was that kind of, you know, solidarity at that time, which was within this kind of far left militant, you know, uh, global milieu, uh, similar milieu that connected them to the struggles in Ireland. Then that goes away in the 80s and 90s um, or dies down. And now I think it's coming back, but it's coming back more in the form of student activism. Um, and you see it now. I mean, there's tremendous solidarity with, of Native people in the United States demonstrating tremendous solidarity uh, with Palestine. So I think, uh, I think our project is part of, in fact, a larger wave, a larger renaissance, if you will, of Native Palestinian solidarity that is happening now. But I don't think it was happening 10 years ago. Yeah. What about from the Palestinian side? Less. Less. Uh, um, I'm sure it still exists, of course, but less. I mean, even within our project, I have to be honest, there was way more openness to the comparison from the native side than from the Palestinian side. Um, from the native side, there was this idea that, yes, of course, the struggles are very similar. Uh, we'll participate in this project if the comparison is made or because the comparison is being made. And it was also a way to project the native issue um, onto an international platform because one of the major things that a lot of Native activists have been fighting for is international recognition, was to be seen in some ways as the Palestinians are, right? As this international cause, not as a domestic cause interior to the U.S. So there, there was a lot of time of work to kind of go into the U.N., to, to have delegations in the U.N., to kind of have the ha internationalize the Native cause, similar to what Malcolm X was trying to do uh, with the Black cause mm. in America in the 60s. Um, so connecting this struggle to Palestine is, is a way of doing that. Um, for, for the Palestinians, uh, they had a contradictory relationship, I would say, to the, uh, to the Native comparison in the sense that they both saw Native Americans as kind of a defeated people, people who had suffered and kind of gone through a genocide, but also uh, saw them as people who were kind of compared to them better off because they are, they were, you know, they have American citizens and they have the right to citizenship and they have all the rights that Americans have. But what they don't understand, or they, I'm sure they understand, but what, what one, one, when one understands those two conceptions, one sees the connection between them. But it's precisely because the uh, Native people, I don't want to say that they were defeated, I would never say that, but they were subjected to a genocide, right? That they, that they were then assimilated into the United States, yeah. and, and, uh, right? Uh, it's precisely because the, pal the genocide of Palestinians is not, has not been completed in any sort of way. Um, that they are denied the ability to participate. I mean, and also to, it's also important, they were assimilated into America. That would be like Palestinians assimilating into Israel, right? Not establishing a Palestine, but becoming Israeli citizens. So, yeah. So I think, I think that was their kind of reluctance. But one of the beautiful things was by, um, when we showed We Love Being Lakota, and when we showed The Way of the Longhouse, which are the films we shot in Pine Ridge and Akwesasne, we work to showcase 
um, Native Americans in a militant kind of light. Yeah. And depict them as kind of being these strong, uh, without falsifying anything, but kind of highlighting the strength and resistance and kind of insight, political insight of, of, of Native people in a way that I think led to interesting conversations when we showed that work in refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and the West Bank. What? Uh, so then, and then, and then just a, sorry, that was a big part of our project. And then as soon as we went back to America, uh, the U.S., we, we showed the work that we shot in refugee camps in the Middle East in native reservations over there. And so there was this back and forth process where we would travel back and forth between um, the Middle East and America, shooting footage, making short films, showing that work and the 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 the, the, the accumulation of that produced spaces of exception. And then during the time when we were shooting, there was also the events at Standing Rock, um, which were fascinating because they Standing Rock is another Lakota reservation uh, in North Dakota. And a lot of the folks who we met in Pine Ridge um, were at the forefront of the struggles in Standing Rock. And we made two short films in Standing Rock, um, Indian Winter and uh, All My Relations. And we showed those works as well in Lebanon and other places. So there was this constant kind of back and forth between the two spaces. And we showed also our work in universities and cinema. So there was, yeah, yeah, this, this process of kind of using film as a kind of a communicative device or, or as a kind of, as a kind of object document that you can take from one place to another because we're capable of circulation, uh, because we have American passports and we had some funding, um, Native people uh, and Palestinian refugee camps don't don't have on reservations. They don't have that same ability to circulate yeah. at all. Sorry, I don't know if that was a tangent. No, no, no. So, okay. I have a question about like the audience that you're speaking to. So, let's say you screen this in Amman, mm -hmm. or you screen this. We did in in Beirut, or you screen this in Cairo or Tunis or Dubai mm. or places mm. across the Arab world. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what people find enlightening, what people find surprising, and if there is as much misinformation and lack of information about the daily lives of individuals in Palestinian refugee camps as there is about the similarities to their lives with Native Americans? Yes, in a certain way. I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions. I, I think for when people don't recognize, people don't think about, people think about the struggle of Palestinians as being a, um, as being a purely military struggle against the occupation. And they don't think about the idea of the camp as this kind of temporary space that is made forever. And so what it means to have generation upon generation upon generation being barred from living a uh, progressing in life in many ways right um and i think it allows people to question the idea of the way that for example lebanon has utilized the right of return as a way of denying palestinian people their rights so you know so it, it, because one of the things we tried to focus you mentioned people's daily life and lifestyles and stuff one of the things we did in the film was actually try to focus more on the outlook of people in these places so kind of trying to ask them to analyze their situation uh, less than document how they live or tell their personal stories, but really try to give their own analysis of their political, social, cultural, economic situation, if you will. 
um, while simultaneously providing a spatial uh, um, sensory kind of uh, depiction of the places. So it's this juxtaposition of, of the sensory kind of visual anthropology almost of the places, then with this kind of um, um, political um, line of questioning where we ask the people there to present their outlook. Yeah. So in that sense, the discourse is kind of not anthropological. It, it's more, it's more of a kind of more of a kind of political dialogue that we're having with these people. But yeah, in the Arab world, I think it depends where you go. It's been interesting because we we've shown this work in museums, in universities, in refugee camps, in reservations, and in cinemas. So sometimes we're talking to activists. Sometimes we're talking to people from a camp. Sometimes we're talking to artsy people in Sharjah. Other times we're talking to people at Columbia or AUB. So the, everybody has a different kind of outlook and a different kind of perspective. But I think in general, uh, there is tremendous ignorance from everybody about reservations, not only in the Arab world. Um, and I think within the Arab world, there is an ignorance to the particularity of the refugee issue in the sense that the difference between what Palestinians in the West Bank who live in refugee camps deal with versus Palestinians in the West Bank writ large. So there's there's not an attention to the particularities of the of the refugee experience, um, the fact that it's not just simply a war between two people, but that, that there is this kind of enclosure of people into these camps, uh, even within Palestine itself. I don't think people were aware of that, and I think in terms of the reservations, just showing them is already a, a, a kind of an act because people don't know that that reservations exist. They they imagine native people to be these kind of museum objects, and one of the beautiful things about Standing Rock, which was this kind of giant. Um, occupation protest against a pipeline was, and it was the largest uh, pan-native gathering in modern history that we know of, was that it showed people that Native Americans are still alive, that they're a growing population, that they have contemporary issues that they are fighting for and that they're concerned about. So I think even showing that to an American audience is already something, let alone um, a Palestinian audience. But yeah, but people are interested in different things. For Palestinians in Lebanon, they were super interested to see how Palestinians had left on the West Bank lived. That was extremely important for them because they just don't see it. Palestinians in the West Bank were extremely interested to see how Palestinians in Lebanon lived. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about in in um, in in a place like Jordan, right? Yeah. What percentage of Jordanians who don't live in refugee camps do you think have ever entered one? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I think Jordan is a special case. I'll tell you why. Um, many of Jordan's citizens are Palestinians. So they perhaps maintain relationships with other Palestinian people who could be in their family who live in refugee camps. So I, I don't know. I can't answer that question, Mikey, but I would say that it was higher than other places. That's for sure. Certainly way higher than Lebanon, where I think there is a, a tremendous distinction made between refugee camp and non-refugee camp, probably more than the other countries, more than the West Bank, certainly, because they're both Palestinian, more than Jordan, I think, and I would imagine more than Syria. What, what do you think of the percent, if you had to just, uh, do you think, let me ask it in an mm -hmm. easier way for you to answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, less than 20% of the population of Lebanon has been to a refugee camp? Of Lebanese citizens? Yeah. Yes. Less than 5%?
are they that exceptional mm -hmm. in that way? Difficult to say. Well, well, what it is is that you have this phenomenon in both cases yeah. of the places that are near the the reservation because of these border towns, these border areas. So if you live near a reservation, which are generally poor areas, you're more likely to go to a reservation. Actually, more likely natives from the reservation will come to the border town. And so you're going to have more, inter you might not go into the reservation, but you're going to have more interaction with people on reservations. Yeah. If you're in the New York City, zero, not zero, but very unlikely that you would be in, in a reservation. I would say definitely less than, certainly less than 10% of Americans have been to a native reservation who are not themselves native. Um, yeah. And in Lebanon, I think it's the same idea. So if you're from Ashrafi, yeah, you're not going to go to a reservation. But if you're from uh, a neighborhood in Saida that's next to a camp, there's more like there's more of a likelihood that you will go to a camp. Lebanese of a lower economic status do sometimes go to camps to buy goods, et cetera, or they maintain relations. So, because in many ways that you know a reservation is a kind of a poor rural area in America, but it then it, but it has the salience because it's native, and it has the native it has the kind of tobacco shops and the casinos and the tribes and the names, and this kind of special administrative status that makes it a reservation. So it's very particular, but in another way, it's kind of just a poor rural part of America. Similarly, refugee camps are also kind of poor parts of Beirut or Tripoli. Um, and so even, but they also have the flags of, of Palestinian flags and pictures of Arafat, et cetera, that make them, that kind of create this kind of special visual look that sets them apart. But yeah, yeah, if, if you live in an area that's near a refugee camp, or if you're from a poor area, there is way more mixing with the camp. So, and that's what I mean when I say they expose things about the nation states that they're in. Yeah. Uh, so, but for an urban audience, an urban rich audience, no, they don't. They don't go to those spaces at all. It's only when the people who live geographically near them and from our similarly kind of poor, poor economic uh, background that might uh, intermarry or have reason to go inside. Yeah, I think. I mean, in that way, I think your film is really powerful insofar as that it, um, if only you know, forces the viewer to, to recognize the existence of the, these places um, with, you know, with respect and with um, compassion. Yeah, and not only that, learning from them. I mean, that's the real gamble of the project was to learn from these people because how much better to learn about the nation state than precisely those people who are disqualified from it? Right. If, we're, if, we're, if we're going to take seriously the project of imagining new ways of living and new ways of being, which is what everybody likes to talk about nowadays, you're not going to invent them from your apartment in Manhattan. Yeah. You have to look at other examples. So if, if you want to understand the contradictions of the nation state, to understand the war, to understand, to have another look on what it means to be transnational, why not talk to people in refugee camps and see what their, see what their analysis is? If we want to imagine different relationships with land, different relationships to each other, different relationships um, with nature, et cetera, then why not turn to uh, uh, traditional people living on, or, or even uh, young activists working in reservations where, where there is a possibility to have different forms of governance and different governmental or political relationships to territory or social relationships to territory. So for us, the gambit was also to learn from these people um, and to learn from the communities inside of them, uh, both in the case of the reservations and in the case of the uh, uh, refugee camps. And that's, and that's why with the book, The Mohawk Warrior Society, 
that's what the, that's what that's really where we went onto that kind of it's a kind of a spin-off if you will yeah a kind of a spin-off within the native and the refugee universe we really focused in on one reservation or not one reservation but really one um one nation and one political group to kind of unpack their political ontology to kind of to kind of understand their history and their their political ideas their political philosophy um which which yeah and i mean one of the main things they did was to try to reclaim land outside the boundaries of the reservation where they could practice their traditional ways of life. And I'm not saying no. that those, that everything that it's, um, that everything is a, is perfect, but it's something we can learn from and it's something we can be in dialogue with. And I, I think similarly, it's very important to ask uh, Palestinian refugees what they think about the situation that they're in, what they think about what it means to be part of a nation. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, super, so that, super, super powerful. Um, okay, so Matic, where can people watch this? So, um, where can people watch this? The movie is not available yet um, for streaming. Spaces of Exception is not yeah. available yet for streaming, but it's screening a lot. Um, it's screening almost you know, a few times a week in different cities. Um, so you can follow us on Instagram. The Native and the Refugee Instagram page, which will let you know where the film is screening, if it's screening near you, um, and sometimes it streams online for definite period for for certain periods of time. Uh, eventually, we hope for it to find a permanent place online, uh, and when and we'll let people know. Cool. But but besides that, two things: one, you can visit our website, thenativeandtherefugee.com, and that has a list of most of our short films. Uh, the events we've made, interviews we've done, articles written about the project. So it's a good place to learn more and you can contact us there because we have our email there. And you can order um, the Mohawk Warrior Society, this book um, from PM Press. So cool. uh, if you're in America or North America, if you're not, uh, unfortunately, I guess I would say Amazon. But so you can have the book and you have the website and you can follow to learn about the Screening Spaces of Exception uh, on Instagram. Cool. And on Facebook as well. Um, Matic, this is super fun. Um, heartbreaking, uh, but enlightening. So thanks so much. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.